0: Passion for God and compassion for our neighbor. Reaching our region and beyond with the life-changing message of Jesus Christ. This is Crosswinds Church. And now, here's Pastor Jordan Gowing. And for the rest of us, we'll be in uh, 1 Samuel chapter 18 this morning. So if you have a Bible, go ahead and open up 1 Samuel 18. Uh, while you're doing that, just want to um, consider uh, something that has to do with our passage, and that is um, a beautiful heart and an ugly heart. There are few things that are more beautiful than a heart that celebrates and rejoices at the success of others, and yet at the same time, there's, there's some, there's, there are a few things that are, are as ugly as a heart that rejoices in the failure and the downfall of others. I think a notable exception to that, of course, would be uh, rooting for the failure of um, opposing sports teams. Um, That's uh, something that uh, I think we can make an exception for. Um, But in real life, in the things that really matter, there's nothing as ugly as rooting for others to fail or, to put it a different way, to uh, get upset with and jealous of the success of others. And it's, it's probably no real surprise that that is something that um, uh, rears its ugly head a lot in pastoral ministry in the church. It can be really easy to gauge success by the number of people who attend a church. And yet, while it's one of the easiest metrics to track, it's probably one of the least accurate on whether you are being faithful or not to God's calling And I want us to begin by just asking ourselves, how do we handle the success of other people? How do you handle the success of other people? When someone receives something, whether it's a promotion, recognition, a larger platform, more playing time, a larger role, whatever it may be, how do you handle, how do you respond when someone receives something that you feel like you deserve? And in part, that is what this morning's text is about. First Samuel 18 comes right on the heels of First Samuel chapter 17. Last week, we looked at First Samuel 17, the story of David and Goliath, and we saw that this passage, it's one of the most well-known passages in the Bible, is not primarily about David and Goliath, it's actually about David and Saul. 1 Samuel 17 contrasts the the actions and the heart posture of David and Saul, and and Goliath is really just the the thermometer to show how they are actually doing. 1 Samuel 17, David passes this test with flying colors, and yet Saul fails miserably. In fact, 1 Samuel 17 is the start of the rest of the book of 1 Samuel, where we will see this contrast between David and Saul. This is the lens through which we should be looking at 1 Samuel, that God wants us to be looking at this understanding that we need a king, but not just any king, we need a king who's going to point us to the true king, to God himself, the king of glory, and Saul, as the first king of Israel, fails over and over again when it comes to the most important things about being a king. He doesn't point us to God, but instead is one who replaces or rebels against God and attempts to usurp God and his authority in, amongst God's people. David, on the other hand, proves time and time again to be a faithful king, David alone is concerned with the glory of God. That's what we saw last week in 1 Samuel 17. David alone trusts in the promises of God, which is why he goes out to fight against Goliath. David is the one, and we will see this as increasingly clear over the rest of 1 Samuel. David is the one who will lead the people of God in worship of God, the King of glory. And we're going to see that contrast continue in this morning's passage, but it's not the only contrast. As we look at this text, we're going to see that there is another contrast on display, and that is the response that people have to David. David, of course, is the Lord's anointed, the future king, the true king of Israel, and how people respond to him matters. And as we look at this text, we're going to see that Saul... And his son, Jonathan, respond to David in radically different ways. So this morning, as we work our way through our chapter, that's going to be what we do. We're just going to look at how how Jonathan responds to David, the Lord's anointed, and how Saul responds to David, to the Lord's anointed. And then we're going to just consider, what does this mean for us today as well? Would you pray with me as we approach God's word? Father, we ask that as we consider your word this morning that your spirit would help us to pause and to reflect on our own hearts, that we would not just see this as something that is recording history from thousands of years ago, but instead that we would also see this as something that matters about us today. That we would see that the response of Jonathan and the response of Saul matters for how it shows the two ways that we can respond to you. So we ask that you would speak to us, that you would give us grace, not just grace to hear, but also grace to respond, to repent and return to you in those areas of our lives where we do not respond to your authority and lordship, to your kingship in the right way. Help us, God. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. All right, so 1 Samuel 18 is this chapter that looks at two responses to the Lord's anointed. It's how does Jonathan, how does Saul respond in the aftermath of David's victory over Goliath? So just a reminder, to this point in 1 Samuel, as we've been working our way through 1 Samuel, Jonathan, every time that we have encountered him, is everything that his father is not. That became increasingly clear in 1 Samuel chapter 13 and 14, where we first meet Jonathan, we see that Saul has no real interest in the things of God, and yet Jonathan is willing to do great things. Willing to do costly things for the sake of the glory of God. In fact, before we encounter Jonathan, or excuse me, before we encounter David, Jonathan is this paragon of faith. He's the one that we look to as the people of Israel and and see, you know what, this is the one that we should be like. Saul is this king who rejects God as the Lord, as the final authority for the people of Israel, but his son Jonathan... Saul's heir, this crown prince, the future king of Israel, this is the one who is consumed with a passion for the glory of God. And when Jonathan finally reaches the throne of Israel, God's people will finally have the king that God wants them to have. When Jonathan reaches the throne, finally God's people will have a king who lead them in following God the true king of glory. And yet, as we see in 1 Samuel, that's not at all how it plays out. In God's mysterious providence, and due to no fault of his own, Jonathan loses the throne before it could ever be his. Because his father rejects God, God rejects his father and his father's family from being the king. And Jonathan and First Samuel, the great warrior of the people of God, is sidelined. We see that someone else will rise to the position of king. Someone else will be used in God's plan His eternal purposes to save Israel and ultimately to save people from every nation to the ends of the earth. And how does Jonathan respond to to this future king, to this David. Let's take a look, chapter 18, verses 1 through 5. As soon as he, David, had finished speaking to Saul, the soul of Jonathan was knit to the soul of David, and Jonathan loved him as his own soul. servants. This text begins immediately after David is victorious over Goliath, and Jonathan is there when David is brought before Saul at the very end of this battle, and the text tells us that the soul of Jonathan is knit to the soul of David. This is really strong language, and yet it's very appropriate language because it describes the kindred spirit Of David and Jonathan. Now, a decade, maybe two decades, has passed since we last saw Jonathan. A decade or two before David and Goliath, there was Jonathan and the Philistines at the Battle of Michmash. And just like David worked a great salvation for the people of Israel over the Philistines, so also Jonathan worked a great salvation for the people of Israel over the Philistines because one, he trusted in God's promises, and two, he was concerned with the glory of God. Remember these words from earlier in 1 Samuel chapter 14 where we see this, Jonathan said to the young man who carried his armor, come, come. Let us go over to the garrison of these uncircumcised. It may be that the Lord will work for us, for nothing can hinder the Lord from saving by many or by few. Catch the heart there of Jonathan's passion, his concern for the glory of God, his trust in the promises of God. And then remember what David said to Goliath, in 1 Samuel chapter 17, notice the parallels of themes. Then David said to the Philistine, you come to me with a sword and with a spear and with a javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. Behind the words is the same, isn't it? And Jonathan in 1 Samuel chapter 14, David in 1 Samuel 17 are both consumed with a passion to defend God's honor, and they believe God's promises that God will fight for them. And both of them are sterling examples of faith for the people of Israel, something that the people of Israel desperately need. And this, of course, begs the question, if Jonathan in chapter 14 is such this amazing example of faith, and, and where is he in chapter 17? Goliath has been issuing his challenge in, in chapter 17 for 40 days. Where is Jonathan? And our text doesn't tell us why he doesn't start, step forward to face Goliath. It's a mystery, and yet I, I have a guess. I think this fits in with the text, but it's just a guess. Probably 15 or 20 years have have passed since the events of 1 Samuel chapter 14, and as we look at what Israel is like during the, the book of 1 Samuel, we know that it is not all that common for the people of Israel to actually care about the things of God, to actually believe in the promises of God, actually willing to stand up for the honor of God. And I imagine that over the course of those 15, 20 years, this wears on Jonathan. That as Jonathan is is faithful and serving God, he's surrounded by people who don't really want much to do with that. And we've all experienced a little bit of something like this, right? Who we surround ourselves matter It matters who you surround yourself with because they have a massive influence on you for better or for worse. And by the time of 1 Samuel chapter 17, Jonathan doesn't step forward to defend the honor, the glory of God because his faith has become dormant. And the Jonathan of chapter 17 is not the Jonathan of chapter 13 and 14. Now, again, that's that's not in the text. But I think that's how I make sense of this discrepancy, this mystery. But when David steps forward in 1 Samuel chapter 17, he appears on the scene. He's consumed with the glory of God. He's passionate about defending God's honor. The faith of Jonathan is awoken. It wakes from its slumber. At long last, Jonathan has found someone who's like him. At long last, there's a man who has a passion for the glory of God. Here's a man who's going to step out in faith, like Jonathan once did. Who's going to risk his life because he believes in, he trusts in the promises of God, like Jonathan. It is no wonder the text says. The soul of Jonathan was knit to the soul of David and Jonathan loved him as his own soul because David has the exact same soul, heart that we see from Jonathan. It's made of the same stuff as Jonathan's heart and passion as well. Now, before we get to the, the heart of the paragraph, which is verses 3 and 4, just notice what verse 2 and verse 5 tell us, the, the aftermath of David's victory over Goliath. In 1 Samuel chapter 14, the very end of the chapter, in verse 52, it tells us that this, this plan of, of Saul is whenever he finds a mighty warrior, he adds them to his retinue. He, he, he recruits them, and that's exactly what happens here in chapter 18. That after this incredible display of of courage and and faith from David in chapter 17, Saul says, hey, why don't you go ahead and join me full-time? You're not going to serve me part-time like you have been. Now join me full-time. And in the months following the battle of David and Goliath, Saul places David in charge of his mighty warriors And David continues to go out in battles, and he continues to win popularity among the people. That's what we see in verse 2 and verse 5. And it seems like in in this paragraph, everyone responds to David with respect, love, admiration. And yet this summary paragraph is is primarily concerned with the response of of one person, and that is Jonathan. Jonathan. These verses are oftentimes used to describe the friendship between Jonathan and David and and we oftentimes hear that this is the best picture of what friendship looks like in the Bible and there are certainly elements here of friendship. It's important for us to learn from these two men and yet, I think it would be wrong for us to say that the primary focus of these verses is to say this is about friendship. This is about what a friend is looks like. For starters, Jonathan is probably 15 to 20 years older than David. They're not the same age. David is in his late teens when we look at 1 Samuel chapter 17 in this battle against Goliath. Meanwhile, Jonathan was already an army commander in 1 Samuel 13 and 14, which took place 10, 15, 20 years earlier than this moment. Of course, deep friendship isn't dependent upon age, so this by itself is, is not the determining factor. I think there's a, there's a more important clue in this text. We look at, at Jonathan's actions towards David in verses 3 and 4 once more, and we see this. Then Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as his own soul. And Jonathan stripped himself of the robe that was on him and gave it to David and his armor, and even his sword, and his bow, and his belt. Let's go ahead and leave these verses up for a moment, because we will reference them a lot. First, we see that Jonathan makes a covenant with David. What does this covenant entail? Well, the text actually tells us by Jonathan's actions in verse 4. Notice what verse 4 says. It says that he strips himself of his robe that was on him and gives, him, gives that robe to David. And this is a significant moment, a significant action from Jonathan here. What, what's going on? Well, when we consider this, we realize that this robe is actually his royal robe. This is the robe of the crown prince. This is a sign of his inheritance, that he is the future king of Israel. And Jonathan's actions here are astonishing, because he takes off his robe, and he gives it to David, and by doing that, he's abdicating his throne to David. He is recognizing that David is the future king, and he is relinquishing any claim that he might have on the throne, on the kingship over God's people. And he gives David his armor, his weapons as well, essentially as a sign of saying, I give my everything to you, David. What on earth could possibly possess Jonathan, the crown prince of Israel, to do something like this? to a man who is 15 years younger than him. There's only one possible explanation. We see that Jonathan is watching the events of chapter 17. And Jonathan would have known about his father's rejection from the Lord that took place in chapter 13 and chapter 15. He would have known that that his family had been rejected by God because of his father's disobedience. He knew that one day God would replace Saul with a king after God's own heart, that God's plan included a king who would lead the people of God to follow God himself, to serve God alone. And when Jonathan sees David facing Goliath, when he hears his words and sees why David is facing Goliath, when no one else would, he reaches the conclusion that this is a man after God's own heart. That this is the type of person that will lead God's people. That this man is the future king of Israel. In other words, Jonathan sees David and instantly, recognizes this is the one who is going to replace him. That this is the one who will become king, not Jonathan. This is the one who will lead God's people. That Jonathan and David may have the same heart, the same passion for the glory of God, but only one of them will be king, and Jonathan knows it is not him. It is this, David. And honestly, that's what makes, for me, that's what makes the actions of Jonathan in this passage just absolutely astounding. Because Jonathan and David are so similar. I don't know about you, but when I get jealous of someone else, it's not someone who is different than me, but it's someone who's similar to me. I don't get caught up comparing myself to Billy Graham or to the Tim Kellers of the world. But I do find myself comparing myself to those I graduated seminary with, those that I see as very similar to me. And Jonathan would have had every right in this moment to compare himself to David and say, hey, why not me? If anything, I have more experience. We have the same passion, the same heart. Why not me? And yet instead, he lays it all down. He submits to this man, 15 young, years younger. Why does he do this? It's because of this word covenant. What is a covenant? In the Bible, a covenant is a relational bond. These, this bond, this commitment between two parties, it oftentimes includes obligations, like I, I will do these things, I, I am required to do these things, as a part of this commitment that we make to one another. It, it involves promises of blessings and, and cursings. This is a, a commitment that Jonathan makes to David. He's saying, I am committing myself to submitting to you as the king of Israel, that I see that you are the Lord's anointed and I am going to submit to you. That here in this moment, Jonathan sees his replacement and says, you know what, even though it's going to cost me my kingdom, I know that being a part of the kingdom of God is better. That even though it's going to cost me my future, I don't want to miss out on a future in God's kingdom. Jonathan's actions here are nothing less than remarkable because here we see Jonathan's response to David. Self-sacrificial submission. That's just what happens with Jonathan. He sacrifices self in submitting to the Lord's anointed, to David. For Jonathan to make a covenant with David would have cost him everything. It cost him his kingdom. It cost him far more than it will ever cost you and me. And yet he does so willingly, he does so immediately. When he would have every reason to cling to power, he instead gives it up. Jonathan yet again shines brightly for us in the book of 1 Samuel. The same can't be said of his dad. As we consider the response of of Saul to David, if Jonathan's response is one of of self-sacrificial submission for Saul, his response is one of self-preserving rebellion. He does all that he can to preserve his own place, his own kingdom, and in doing so, he rebels against God. He rebels against God's plan. The rest of the chapter recounts five opportunities that Saul has to follow God's will, to respond by following and keeping with God, by by responding to David the right way. And in each of these opportunities, Saul rejects them. He doesn't primarily reject David, but he does do that. He rejects God and God's plan, which calls for him to relinquish the throne and to respond with repentance. So I mentioned there's five rejections that take place here. Let's go ahead and look at each in turn. The first one is in verses 6 through 9. As they were coming home, when David returned from striking down the Philistine, the women came out from all of the cities of Israel singing and dancing to meet King Saul with tambourines, with songs of joy, and with musical instruments. And the women sang to one another as they celebrated, Saul is struck down as thousands and David as ten thousands. And Saul was angry, very angry, and this saying displeased him. He said, They have ascribed to David ten thousands and they have ascribed me thousands. And what more can he have but the kingdom? And Saul eyed David from that day on. After the events of 1 Samuel chapter 17, Saul, his his retinue, they return to the capital city of Gibeah on their way back to Gibeah on this march. They're met by singers rejoicing in the salvation, the deliverance of Israel. And this is just poetry here. This phrase, when it talks about slaying thousands and slaying ten thousands, is not meant to be literal. It's talking about this utter, complete victory that God has provided for the people of Israel. Now, let's be honest. The words that these women say are probably not the wisest words. It's hard not to see a comparison here between David and Saul, and yet, Saul has an opportunity to overlook such a slight. He has the opportunity to just keep his peace, to acknowledge that God used David in this moment and that Saul had had every opportunity for 40 days when Goliath was taunting Israel to respond and he did nothing. While David has stepped forward with great faith at the first opportunity, it would have cost Saul a little bit of his pride but the facts are undeniable, right? But that's not what we see from Saul. Immediately, he takes offense to the words of these women. He he gets very angry in verse 8. In a moment of unintentional foreshadowing, Saul says, you know what, this song is, is almost as bad as just giving this man the kingdom, which is exactly what God will do. And so, what should have been a moment of, of sweet celebrating God's deliverance of his people, it's spoiled because Saul chooses to become bitter. He he refuses to acknowledge David's role in delivering God's people because he's jealous, because his own pride has been offended. And the text ends on a sinister note saying that he has eyed David from this day on. He's got his eye on David. That's the first rejection of his opportunity to repent and follow David. We see another chance coming up. David is still an important part of of Saul's royal court. Now he's not just serving as a musician, he's also serving as an army commander. Notice what happens next in verse 10. The next day, a harmful spirit from God rushed Upon Saul, and he raved within his house while David was playing the lyre as he did day by day. Saul had his spear in his hand, and Saul hurled the spear, for he thought, I will pin David to the wall. But David evaded him twice. So upon reaching Gibeah, David takes up his regular spot in the court. He's playing music on the lyre. Recall back in in chapter 16 that David did this regularly, that whenever there was this evil spirit that would afflict Saul, David would play music and he would be soothed from this evil spirit. But that's not what happens here. Now, David is the target of this torment. And before this evil spirit rushes upon Saul, this time the music does no good. And Saul now makes the logical leap that that David, not this evil spirit, but David is the source of his torment and if he can just kill David... You just get rid of David, then everything will be okay. And so he tries not once, but twice to kill David, and he fails both times. Recall what we said back in 1 Samuel chapter 16, a long time ago, I know. But we said that that Saul was afflicted with this spirit so that he might be led to repentance, that there was a purpose. For this evil spirit. And yet rather here than repenting, we see that rather than turning away, he decides to do the opposite. He tries to kill David. He rejects God's plan again. And we see why in the next verse. Saul was afraid of David because the Lord was with him, but had departed from Saul. So Saul reaches the conclusion that the only way David could have escaped him these two times is because God is with him. This is a common refrain throughout the life of David, that God is with him, and yet rather than recognizing that, that, you know what, maybe I should, should side with David, Saul goes to the opposite. He responds with great fear. It's almost as if Saul is saying, hey, you know what, this matchup is unfair, that That it's just me by myself and and it's David. He's got God on his side. That's not fair. And the thought of repenting and following God by submitting to God's plan is the furthest thing from Saul's mind. Instead, Saul adopts a new tactic to get rid of David, verses 13 through 16. So Saul removed him from his presence and made him a commander of a thousand, and he went out and came in before the people, and David had success in all his undertakings, for the Lord was with him. Here's that refrain again. And when Saul saw that he had great success, he stood in fearful all of him. But all Israel and Judah loved David, for he went out and came in before them. So here's what's going on here. To this point, David has been in this role where he's set over the men of war, and he's, this is a court position. And Saul says, you know what, we're going to get you out of the court. We're actually going to get you on the battlefield, I don't want you here anymore. I want you leading armies. And so, this is why Saul sees that, that God is on David's side, and he, so he decides to, to, to embrace the law of averages. So let's, get, let's get David out onto the front lines because eventually the Philistines will catch up with him. Eventually, David will run out of luck. The more we throw him in front of the opposing army, eventually, one day, David will be killed. That's just the way things work. It's the law of averages. And, and of course, Saul, even though he recognizes that, that the Lord is with with David, he, he refuses to bring that into his equations. And rather than David dying on the battlefield, he's met with success after success. Why is that? Verse 14, David had success in all his undertakings for the Lord was with him. Because God is with David, Saul's plan backfires and Saul is left in fearful awe of all the success of David And David's stock with the people of Israel skyrockets because he goes out before them to fight their battles. Saul is losing the nation, and yet re- rather than responding with repentance, he, he doubles down. He's got another trick up his sleeve. That's what we see this time using his daughters, starting in verse 17. Then Saul said to David, Here is my elder daughter Merib, I will give her to you for a wife. Only be valiant for me and fight the Lord's battles. For Saul thought, let not my hand be against him, but let the hand of the Philistines be against him. And David said to Saul, who am I and who are my relatives, my father's clan in Israel, that I should be his son-in-law to the king? But at the time when Merib, Saul's daughter, should have been given to David, she was given to Adriel, the Meholathite, for a wife. Saul wants to coerce David to stay on the front, front lines, to remain valiant, and to continue to fight the Lord's battles. And, and you notice here that Saul doesn't really care about God's plan, doesn't really care about following God, and yet he invokes the name of the Lord to get David into a spot where he will more likely be killed. And so Saul promises his daughter's hand in marriage. You know what, David, all you got to do is just remain on the battlefield. And, and this is just a depraved heart here. He uses his daughter as a pawn in order to get David killed. Of course, David responds with a little bit of reluctance. He says, Hey, you know what? I don't, I don't think this is false humility, by the way. He, he, he responds by saying, I'm not worthy of being a part of the family of Israel's king. And so Merib is given to someone else, even though Saul had promised her to David. But Saul's not done. In his quest to kill David, he finds another one of his daughters, Michael, has, has gone the way of the nation, loves David, and he is delighted. Verse 20, now Saul's daughter, Michael, loved David, and they told Saul, and the thing pleased him. Saul thought, let me give her to him, that she may be a snare for him, and that the hand of the Philistines may be against him. Therefore, Saul said to David a second time, you shall now be my son-in-law. And Saul commanded his servants, speak to David in private and say, behold, The king has a delight in you, and all his servants love you. Now then, become the king's son-in-law. And Saul's servants spoke these words in the ears of David, and David said, Does it seem to you a little thing to become the king's son-in-law, since I am a poor man and have no reputation? And the servants of Saul told him, Thus and so did David speak. Then Saul said, Thus you shall say to David, The king desires no bride price except a hundred foreskins of the Philistines, that he may be avenged of his king's enemies." Now Saul thought to make David fall by the hand of the Philistines. And when his servants told David these words, it pleased David well to be the king's son-in-law. Before the time had expired, David arose and went along with his men and killed 200 of the Philistines. And David brought their foreskins, which were given in full number to the king, that he might become the king's son-in-law. And Saul gave him his daughter, Michael, for a wife. Wow. Again, here, Saul... Has schemes to, to put David to death. Notice that he's got two ways that he hopes to discredit or get rid of David. The first one is to be a snare. He's going to give Michael to be a snare to, to David. The second reason is so that the hand of the Philistines might be against him. These are not referring to the same thing. His first plan, when we see in the Old Testament this idea of a snare, it is referring to idolatry. And so it seems that Saul has a plan to to get the Lord to abandon David by trying to trap David in worshiping idols. We're actually going to see next week in chapter 19 that Michael is in some form an idol worshiper. She keeps idols in the home. And so rather than Saul joining in with God's plan, rather than joining the Lord's anointed, he instead says, you know what? If I can just get him to worship another God, then God will abandon him just like he abandoned me, and then the playing field will be level. But that's not his only plan. In case that fails, he's going to try to use the Philistines to put David to death. And so the second offer is made to David, and and again, David is reluctant. How could someone like David possibly afford the bride price for the king's daughter? And the answer, of course, is he isn't, or he's not able to. But Saul is willing to work with David. He makes an agreement with him. He says, you know what, rather than paying me in silver, go ahead and just pay me in body parts. And this is gruesome, yes, but this is standard practice, actually all the way up until the 1900s. This was a standard practice to, to use a part, to cut off a part of a, 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 an enemy's body to prove that you were victorious. And why the foreskin? Well, it's because the Philistines were the only ones of Israel's neighbors that actually didn't practice one, uh, a form of circumcision. And so this was the one part of the body that could prove that he had slain a Philistine. And Saul says to David, okay, if you want my daughter's hand, then go ahead and pay me in body parts of my enemies. Again, Saul's motives here are, are clear. He's gonna, he gives David this incredibly high number, and odds are David is going to get killed before he gets to 100. And if he doesn't, the Philistines are going to be even more incensed because they see David desecrating the bodies of their soldiers and friends. And yet David agrees to this. He might not be able to pay Saul in silver, but he says, you know what, I'm going to be able to defeat with the Lord's help enough Philistines to pay this bride price. And sure enough, that's exactly what happens. What's more, he pays double, leaving no doubt that David has done what he was asked. Notice how this passage concludes. But when Saul saw and knew that the Lord was with David, And that Michael, Saul's daughter, loved him. Saul was even more afraid of David. So Saul was David's enemy continually. Then the commanders of the Philistines came out to battle. And as often as they came out, David had more success than all the servants of Saul. So that his name was highly esteemed. No matter how many times Saul has the opportunity to repent, he instead doubles down, chooses to stand opposed to the Lord and to the Lord's anointed what do we learn from this text? I just want to briefly consider two things. First, by looking at Jonathan's response. First, we see in Jonathan's response this man who has the world, and yet as a part of God's plan, he's going to lose it all. And how does he respond? As I was thinking about Jonathan this text, I was reminded of the words, famous words of, of Jim Elliott, Right before he was martyred by sharing the gospel, for sharing the gospel in the nineteen fifties, he wrote in his journal, He is no fool who gives up what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. Isn't that Jonathan in this passage? This man who gives up this kingdom that he knows that he cannot keep, so that he has a place in the kingdom of God? Jonathan has this eternal perspective. He understands that it is far more important to be on the side of the Lord, the side of the Lord's anointed, than anything else in the world. And so he gives it all up. We can learn a lot from Jonathan in this passage. How often is our day-to-day decision-making foreign to the heart of Jonathan? How often do we refuse to submit an area of our lives, even though it would be costly, sacrificial because we refuse to let go of our kingdom. You are no fool if you give up what you cannot keep to gain what you cannot lose. What about the response of Saul? Jonathan, this beautiful example of how we should respond to the Lord's anointed. Saul, on the other hand, sobering reminder that there is nothing more deadly than an unrepentant and rebellious heart. That's what we see time and time and time again from Saul. The tragedy of King Saul continues here. He persists in rebellion against God. He persists in in rebelling against the Lord's anointed. He might speak in religious terms, and yet he is firmly opposed to God. And I wonder how often we do that too. That we hear the prompting of the Holy Spirit. We know the good that we ought to do, and yet we do not. That we do not surrender certain areas of our lives to the Lord. All too often, we're busy with our own little kingdoms. So don't miss the warning of Saul here. There's nothing more deadly than an unrepentant heart. You see that this text is also calling us to respond. That we also have to respond. And just like it was the Lord's anointing to which Saul and Jonathan had to respond, we also have to respond to the Lord's anointed. We have to respond to Jesus and there, there are two paths before us. And of course the question is, will we submit to or reject King Jesus? Will you submit to or reject King Jesus? Will you follow the path of Jonathan? This, this painful costly, humbling path, yes, but life-giving and eternally worth it? Or will you follow the path of Saul? Stubborn, defiant, doing all that you can to keep your little, short-lived kingdom intact. Will you submit to or reject the Lord's anointed King Jesus? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the challenge that it is to each and every one of us. And God, as I consider this text, I I wonder who is able to respond. Help us, God, to be a people who follow Jonathan and submitting to you, the Lord's anointed. That's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. This has been a presentation of Crosswinds Church. More of Pastor Jordan's sermons can be found online at crosswinds.tv. Thanks for being with us, and may God continue to enrich your life.